Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Prospect Podcast, this time with Whitehall's long-time Mr Europe, Britain's former ambassador in Brussels, Stephen Wall. Because while it may be a new political year, Theresa May starts with all the same old problems. Foremost amongst them, a Brexit deal that looks too unloved to make it through the Commons, and no clear plan B about what happens if it doesn't pass. But we'll come back to Brexit a little later. First, I'm delighted to be joined here in the studio by our cultural doyen, Samir Rahim, and our webmaster general, Stephanie Bolan. Hello. Hi. So, Stephanie, first, um, Prospect has done an awful lot this year about the question of free speech, often free speech online, but this week it's bubbled back up. Yes, so this was MP Anna Subri and separately but relatedly commentator Owen Jones both being subject to harassment from what seemed to be far-right um, groups and individuals around College Green. So Owen Jones was followed down the street by a group of these people who were shouting at him, calling him a traitor, things like that. And Anna Subri, actually in a live broadcast, was subjected to chance of Subri as a Nazi. Rightly, this is been met with outrage by commentators. We've also had a group of 55 MPs write to Cressida Dick of the Metropolitan Police saying more needs to be done to protect MPs. And this perhaps raises a bit of a problem in that we can be shocked and disgusted by some of these things, but whether or not we criminalise them is perhaps a slightly different question. Smear, it's always there, this question of free speech. As long as I can remember, people have said, oh, they've been cheapening the political discussion, it's been debased. People used to say dreadful things about, say, Margaret Thatcher, and we can argue about whether they were justified or not. But people seem more sensitive now, maybe. Well, I think inevitably after the murder of Joe Cox a couple of years ago, the safety of MPs and um, the language that we use to describe them um, is coming under much more scrutiny. It is a difficult one. I think I do incline to think that we have to protect people's right to be extremely rude to their political representatives. I think it's perhaps slightly different when you have a commentator like Owen Jones, who, who you know, isn't an elected MP. But someone like Anna Subri, you know, she has her stall, she set it out, she has a powerful argument that she makes. And although those are the words that I wouldn't choose to use, and I think I was slightly horrified when I heard those people attacking her in that way, politicians, I would like to think that they're still open to being um, criticised and even barracked in a way that perhaps in the ordinary measure of things we wouldn't accept. And there's also a point, isn't there, about having the recourse to that sort of extreme language being available, because although I would never describe Anna Subri as a Nazi, I can't say hand on heart there aren't circumstances that do call for those sorts of comparisons. We've seen across the global north this year the election of far-right politicians who are doing extreme things. We have ethnic cleansing going on of Muslims in China at the moment. So having those words 
abandon entirely off the table is something that makes me very uncomfortable. We had on the cover, didn't we, is Donald Trump a fascist not long ago? Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a recent case in America, uh, Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian-American congresswoman, said that um, uh, of Trump that we should impeach that motherfucker. Um, and that caused a huge storm in the US and discussions about coarsening the discourse. Trump, I think, believe, I believe he said that she had dishonoured her family, which was a very weird thing to say. Ideally, one shouldn't be using that kind of language describing the president, but, I mean, you've got to ask who started this coarsening in the first place. And this is the big problem here in the UK as well, isn't it, is that not all coarse political language is made equal. And when we talk about, you brought up Joe Cox, when we talk about the increased threat of violence and intimidation that is coming from certain groups within this country, and you have to view these statements within within that prism. Absolutely. And it isn't just the far right as well. I mean, we've seen pictures of certain far left activists tar- target Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, and his family as well. What's interesting, though, at both Rees-Mogg and, and Anna Subri, they both reacted with uh, quite a lot of dignity and uh, in fact, they come out of these situations quite well. Um, it's a bit like when John Major got egged in 1992, when you can sort of present your opponents or your opponents present themselves as being uh, unreasonable and extreme and, and unpleasant. It l- makes you like look like the more reasonable party. I mean, that's what, what came across. Salbury, a skilled politician, used this. Say, look at these people who are like, shouting taunts at me and you know not not worth engaging with and therefore kind of advanced her political point but I suppose the thing here Steph is always and it's been the same since I don't know Mill in the 19th century that there's always lines on free speech somewhere so Mill said yeah you can go make a rabble-rousing speech but you can't make it about burning down a corn merchant's house in front of the corn merchant's house I think was his example and we almost don't know whether this language will will look back on it and say oh it's good that people let that pass over like water off a duck's back but then if we do get another joe cox case then i guess we might look back and feel quite differently i think it becomes more complex when we get close to things like hate speech and to threats some of the abuse that owen jones is subject to is very homophobic and some of it is on criminal harassment so it could be a hate crime equally when we look at things like Twitter? Do you have the right to send abuse to somebody on a platform when you've signed up to their terms of agreement? No, you definitely don't. So what you mean by that is there's no absolute right to a Twitter account, so it could be switched off without absolutely breaching your fundamental right of free speech. Yes, right. Yes, but I think the space on College Green outside Parliament is more difficult because it ought to be a space of protest. I think people on all sides of the political spectrum tend to believe that quite strongly. When it comes to a politician outside Parliament, it's much more difficult to think of a one-size-fits-all rule. So plenty of theatrics, ugly and otherwise, on College Green. But Samir, you've been thinking about political theatre another type, or maybe I should say more accurately, political television. I hate to bring uh, Brexit into the cultural sphere, um, but it seems to be affecting all aspects of our lives at the moment. Recently, we saw the Brexit uh, and Uncivil War, which was the two-hour film on Channel 4 by James Graham and starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Dominic Cummings, uh, the geeky uh, mastermind, as he was presented, as uh, the, um, uh, the Leave campaign, uh, which got us out of the European Union. Um, and I was wondering whether there was, you know, personally, I thought the, the programme itself was a bit shoddy, and uh, it seemed to veer between presenting Cummings as a sort of evil genius a la Sherlock Holmes. I don't know, I was wondering about why we're so attracted to making programmes very soon after political 
events have taken place. I don't know if this is the fault of the West Wing, really, where we look to politics for its drama rather than for its content. Steph, um, I mean, isn't one fairly obvious reason for it that politics, anyway, for the last couple of years at least, has been pretty nakedly a business of theatre? I'm not sure politics is necessarily more of a drama than it has been at any period, certainly in the past century. What I do find interesting, Samir, is it seems to have coincided with a fall in certain forms of satire. So we were talking the other week about um, spitting image and whether a programme like that would be successful today. This idea of we do the drama rather than taking the mick out of people has become more normal and I'm not entirely sure it why. It takes them very seriously, doesn't it? It takes them at their own valuation that um, we can have a whole programme about you know, the intense brooding rivalry between Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown, when, in fact, looking back on it, it doesn't really seem very important, does it? I mean, given that the next year we had the Iraq war and we've had the financial crisis and we've had everything that's happened in the last, uh, in the last uh, few years, I wonder if it's, just, it's just more interesting for writers to think about politics in terms of personalities than it is in terms of um, democracy is a space where quite sort of slow, grinding, boring decisions get made that affect the rest of the country. Jonathan Friedland, who I used to work with at The Guardian, once said to me a lot writing about American politics, because it's kind of politics for arts graduates rather than, I don't know, economics graduates or something that it might have been over here when the arguments are all about whether Gordon Brown's tax credits have got too big. And it's certainly like with Trump and with Brexit, much more about those things in a in a very natural way now, Samir, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But what I wanted to ask you, uh, Tom, was uh, Dominic Cummings, the, um, the hero of James Graham's uh, drama, tragic hero in some ways. I believe you know him, and, and, and do you think it was an accurate portrayal of uh, by Benedict Cumberbatch? Knowing him is overdoing it. I met him. Um, he is, I mean, what was true about it is he, he's very ma- maverick, He's very um, self-assured and um, loves to kind of overturn conventional wisdom. Like, although he was, he came through as um, Michael Gove's spad. So he was a, you know, a a political fixer role, but he was keen to point out he'd never been in a political party and that his real inspirations were, I don't know, Nobel Prize winning physicists and so on, rather than... um, Margaret Thatcher or any other kind of more traditional conservative heroes. But what really did come across uh, in the play and in real life, as soon as you talk to him, is he's very clever, thinks for himself and thinks extremely lowly of everyone he's ever worked with, with the kind of half, but only half exception of Michael Gove. And no one's really up to it, apart from possibly Dominic Cummings. And that did come across, I think, in the in the programme. Can we talk about the most important point in the programme, though? which is obviously when a, a magazine that's meant to be prospect appears on, on screen. Oh, product placement. Yeah, what is it called? Was it called The Statistician? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that's the best advert It's, it's for not us. massively <laughs> flattering, is it? I think we should maybe re-examine our editorial policies in light of this particular spoon. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everyone complaining on Twitter about the various accuracy and saying that person would never have met at that tube station or uh, the rest of it. I mean, that was the point where, you know, everyone at Prospect felt... Um, that was, you know, I looked at the front cover and they actually they'd, they'd had a space, colon space on the front cover. And I thought we would never have done that. Will you be putting in a complaint? I've already tweeted about it. So I, I feel like I've, <laughs> I've sort of I've put it out there. See what the reaction reaction. 
Okay, but now let's get over to this week's main feature, our political correspondent Alex Dean, who's interviewing Stephen Wall, the Mandarin who was often at Tony Blair's side on matters of Europe and has since written the Cabinet Office's official history of our tangled relations with Europe. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. The question on the minds of every Brexit watcher uh, as Parliament returns is Theresa May's deal. Does it have any chance of getting through? And if it can't get through the Commons and past MPs, what comes next? Well, at the moment, it doesn't look as if she's got the votes. I think the interesting thing in the very short term is whether the amendment that's under discussion and around about the House of Commons today, which is an attempt to rule out a hard Brexit, whether that prevails. If it does prevail, it weakens her chances of winning over those moderates who would rather have her deal than have Britain crash out. On the other hand, it maybe slightly strengthens her hand with some of her more hardline opponents, but I think only I think only marginally. One of the main controversial points on this deal has been the Northern Irish backstop, and a lot of MPs who say they object to the deal pick that out as the reason for, for their objection. Could you just explain uh, what the backstop is and why so many MPs find it so objectionable? Well, as an Irish journalist said to me repeatedly, very recently, you guys keep talking about that this as if it's an Irish issue. And he's right, it isn't actually an Irish issue per se. It's an issue about the fact that once you leave the European Union, there has to be a border between you as a third country and the European Union because you're no longer in the same customs union uh, or single market. Basically, what the European Commission were offering the British government was to have a kind of notional border, as it well, a real border, but notional in geographical terms, somewhere in the Irish Sea. And the British government rejected that on the basis that it wasn't politically acceptable to have no border, as it were, between a third country for us, Ireland, and Northern Ireland, and yet a border between Northern Ireland and the UK. So basically what the backstop says is no, if no alternative satisfactory arrangement can be found to avoid a hard border between North and South, to which everybody is, is committed, then effectively you have to continue an arrangement which will allow the border to be kept open. And the only uh, available arrangement is effectively to keep the whole of the United Kingdom inside the customs union and to an extent the single market so that you don't have to have that frontier. And that's something that the Brexiteers won't like because they view the customs union as shackling us to the EU and stopping us pursuing uh, kind of trade deals around the world. That's that's their objection. I mean, I personally think that the notion that these trade deals are there to be grasped is is a fanciful one. It will be a lot of very hard work over a long period. And of course, by coming out, we lose the existing trade deals we have as members of, of the European Union. I think what particularly irks them, uh, and, it, and indeed in a way it irks both sides, is the fact that it keeps us in a, a kind of continuing relationship. From their point of view, it's too close a relationship. From the point of view of Remainers, it's not that it's too close. It's the fact that we effectively are bound by the rules that we've always been bound by as members of the EU, but we no longer have any say uh, in the formulation of those rules. We simply have to take whatever is decided by the 27 members who remain. Well, that doesn't sound very much like taking back control to me. No. The, the other 
party all bound up in this is the DUP, isn't it? Because the backstop, basically, there'd be an all-UK customs union, so there wouldn't be a customs border down the Irish Sea, but there would be a regulatory one. Exactly, and they object to the regu- they object to, their, to that regulatory one. I mean, I'm not an expert in the, in, in the existing regulations, but there are existing regulations. It isn't completely without control. I mean, there are some so-called phytosanitary controls already. So it's not, not breaking completely new ground, but nonetheless, that is the ground on which they've taken a stand. So this is the background... Uh, to the meaningful vote, which of course was pulled by Theresa May because she didn't think she had the numbers to win it. You just mentioned a very interesting amendment actually when you started speaking. Nicky Morgan and Yvette Cooper, I think, together, so it's a cross-party amendment, uh, trying to stop the government going for a no-deal Brexit. They're, they're basically, that their aim is to amend the finance bill, which obviously the government depend upon in order to have the authority of parliament to raise money, as it were, i.e. to tax uh, us, the taxpayer, to amend it that they would not be allowed to spend public money on preparing for a no-deal Brexit. So it's a slightly indirect way of preventing the, the government from going down the sort of crashing out uh, option. Now, that to me seems like an extremely high risk strategy because uh, it seems like something that, you know, maybe an ideal from a Remain perspective anyway, could stop the government going for no deal. But the worst case scenario is that we do end up with no deal, but it's even more chaotic than it otherwise would have been because the government's hands have been tied in this way. Well, I think they probably they probably calculate uh, that it it leads us towards a situation uh, in which we're more likely to have a second uh, referendum. And that I, I must be their hope. Or uh, that it leads the government to ask for some extension of the Article 50 period, which all our 27 partners would have to agree to. Uh, Chris Patton, former cabinet minister uh, back in the John Major government and former uh, member of the European Commission, was suggesting this just the other day. But he made the correct point that our partners are only likely to agree to it if we had a clear plan of what we wanted to extend for. If we wanted to extend in order to have a referendum, I think they'd agree. Chris Patton was suggesting that we might ask for the extension because we had decided we wanted to stay in the customs union and the single market. But that latter option is one that arouses, of course, all the opposition of the people who oppose the Theresa May deal. So not sure that that, action, that of itself uh, solves anything. As someone who's spent a lot of time in Brussels and kind of seen the inner workings of these kind of talks and negotiations up close, do you see any prospect of, of the EU flexing in any significant way? I think they will always, they will all, I mean, the, the EU is, is adept at uh, drafting convoluted language. Because if you think about it, if you're going to get the agreement of 28 countries on anything, there's got to be a certain amount of obfuscation in some of the wording to satisfy everybody. So they'd, they'd do something on that, but not, not enough to change the substance. In other words, they might do something that was optical. But I don't think anything that's optical will satisfy those people in Parliament for whom the, the backstop is uh, is completely unacceptable. Unless there's a shift in, uh, in opinion that people are looking for some sort of face saver to enable them to vote for a deal they really don't like. And that might apply to some of the moderates rather than to the hardliners. But it's not going to affect the substance. And, I, and there's no sign whatsoever of the 27 agreeing to change the substance. There's, there's one other uh, issue, uh, which is, of course, whether uh, Theresa May might allow Parliament a, a say before the backstop was actually implemented. Now, she could grant that, but the problem with that is that if Parliament, when it came to the backstop coming into force 
if it was called on to do so, and Parliament said no, Parliament is basically abrogating what will then be an international treaty. So that's tantamount to, to crashing out, but in the worst possible circumstances because you've raised sort of hopes of, and, you would, and we would be some way down the path to a long-term deal, and all that's then wiped off the table. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> looking back, it's, it's all retrospective now, and it's easy to be wise after the fact, but it really feels like we should have had a plan before we set Article 50 in motion. I think the, pro- I think the problem for Theresa May was that she came in with the reputation of being a Remainer in a kind of Brexit climate and depending upon the support of uh, her backbenchers, uh, of whom a significant number are, are Brexiteers. And therefore the pressure not to delay in terms of in terms of invoking Article 50 was 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 very strong. Uh, now I think it would have been it would have been a lot better to have a plan. Whether that whether if we'd had a plan it would have been any better than the one we've ended up with is of course another question. The fact is you cannot extricate yourself. I mean, you cannot do what the Labour Party are basically proposing we should do in their policy, which is to extricate yourself from a very intimate trading relationship and have the same advantages. And my quarrel with the Labour Party position is that they're basically saying uh, we can be outside and still maintain all the advantages. And Labour are incredibly important in all of this and in the parliamentary arithmetic. Do you see their position changing as as the timer ticks down? There's no, there's no very obvious sign of it, except that public opinion polls do seem to suggest that Labour voters are shifting quite significantly in terms of basically not, not wanting Britain to come out and maybe favouring a second uh, referendum and wanting Jeremy Corbyn to come off the fence on the issue of a, of a second referendum. And certainly not just Labour voters, but Labour members. Yeah. And Corbyn is someone, I suppose, who's always championed the idea of internal party democracy. Uh, and perhaps the pressure there could could build up so great. Yeah, I think it. I think it might. I mean, I think we've got. A, I think we've got a way to go. I think they they will wait and see what happens to Theresa May's deal list. Their hope, obviously, still is that they can defeat Theresa May's deal, uh, and that then that might call in question the future of the government, and that there then might be a general election. I think all those are very, very kind of long shot things. Now, if there were a general election, and the Conservative Party went into the election saying this is, if you vote for us, it's a vote for leaving, and Labour said if you vote for us, it's a vote for staying, that would be, in my mind, a very good form of democracy, because I happen to believe in parliamentary democracy. But we aren't going to get that. At the moment, the position of the Labour Party in a general election would be, we'll give you a better form of Brexit. But actually, they've not done anything to demonstrate realistically what that better form of Brexit would be. Isn't it a bit of an odd situation where you've got different members of the Labour leadership saying slightly different things and they might come out for the same policy in kind of technical language, but in the way they emphasise different points? Keir Starmer seems to be very much more towards the Remain side. John McDonnell maybe slightly more towards the Remain side too. Corbyn, on the other hand, seems very much a Eurosceptic. And when you map who's making what comments where, it seems quite difficult actually to read the the attitude and mood of the Labour leadership at the moment. Yes, I mean, in in, in terms of um, leaders of parties uh, saying contradictory things, it's not the position that the um, various senior members of the government are all talking on the same on the same on the same script uh, either. Well, I think you know Jeremy Corbyn is is a lifelong uh, disliker of the of the European uh, Union, 
And when he's questioned, he talks about the way the European Union can interfere with your ability to support your own uh, companies and industries. This is very much a Labour view of the 1950s and 1960s and early 1970s. The fact of the matter is, of course, that the rules of the European Union uh, yeah, they do limit the amount of state aid you can give to your own industries, but that's to stop a kind of competitive uh, subsidy system that ends up beggaring uh, everybody. But that's not Jeremy Corbyn's view. Jeremy Corbyn's view, I think, still is that uh, he would be happier for us to come out, and I don't think that is the view of John MacDonald, and certainly not the view of Keir Starmer. I mean, there's something very weird in all this, I think, which is in the Labour position, which is that Corbyn objects to the state aid rules, but they would come tied to the customs union that Labour wants to stay a part of. Yeah, of course, that's why that's why their position is frankly dishonest, because they're promising something that is simply not compatible with the, the, the facts. So they've got these steps and somewhere down the down the line is a second referendum. And that's the outcome you'd like to see. I think that in I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in parliamentary democracy. But if parliamentary democracy can't sort this out because Parliament can't sort it out. If we get to that situation, then I do think, yes, it should go back to us, the people. And I don't buy what you might call the John Humphreys argument that this would produce rioting in the streets. Because what you're basically saying to people is just that, the part we in Parliament can't decide, and we have to turn it over to you, the people. Uh, now, Michael Gove was suggesting at the weekend that actually the Leave vote would increase in a second uh, referendum. Uh, I mean, I, obviously, none of, us can, none of us can possibly know. But if you felt very, very strongly uh, that what you had voted for last time around, i.e. to leave, was being taken away from you, then you would be motivated to come out and, and vote. I mean, other countries have done this. The Irish have changed their minds. The Danes changed their minds. It doesn't produce rioting in the streets. Why would it produce rioting in the streets when people are being asked to decide their own future, the future of their country? I don't, I don't myself see it. What I think is much more risky from a government's point of view is if after a referendum, whichever way it turned out, and after Brexit, if that was the way it turned out, that the government didn't then, did not then address the underlying issues, which I think were a big factor in the referendum result in 2016, which is the failure of the government actually to do the things that we expect governments to do in terms of our health service, social security, etc., etc. Do you think the first referendum was legitimate in terms of, um, there's all this talk, we just saw the Channel 4 Brexit documentary and there's all these allegations of overspending and so on. I mean, do you think it counted as a legitimate democratic exercise? Well, over, I mean, I, I can't measure the significance of the overspending in terms of whether how far that skewed the system or indeed how far manipulation of media skewed the system. I do think referendums are a flawed form of, of exercise of, of, of democracy because they, they, they don't really give time for reflection. They are very often about a whole lot of extraneous uh, issues. If you want to give the government a kicking, it's a good opportunity to do so. And my guess is that quite a lot of people who reluctantly voted for David Cameron in 2015 because they didn't believe in Ed Miliband probably saw this as an opportunity to give David Cameron and his government uh, a kicking uh, and so on and so forth. But none, you know, none, nonetheless, if they are fairly conducted, they are obviously a, leg a legitimate form of democracy. I mean, one way to see the last couple of years I suppose is the grinding gears as the system tries to accommodate a referendum in what is basically a representative parliamentary system and it's the clash between those two things. Yes and I think we've in a sense we've slightly lost our kind of faith in the parliamentary democracy uh, system. I mean interestingly after the 1975 referendum the first referendum we had on Europe whether we were going after two years of membership whether we were going to stay in and the result was a very convincing uh, vote in favour of staying in, uh, Enoch Powell, who was one of the leading politicians of the day, a leading leave campaigner, said 
this, res this result uh, is no more enduring than the lifetime of one parliament. In other words, what he was saying is the only sovereign body in the United Kingdom is the elected parliament, and we've slightly gone away from that. I mean, I think the extent to which MPs right across parliament have said, the people have voted, we have to do what the people have, have, have said. Only now, I think, are people beginning to realize that actually they have a responsibility to weigh up their own view of what the interests of the country uh, is and, and, and vote accordingly. You've worked with some quite impressive statesmen uh, in your time. Do, do you think that we'd be in a better position if we had leaders of a higher calibre? Has, has the quality of politicians declined? I think if you're an old man like me, you always kind of look back and you you kind of forget some of the some of the, some of the. I mean, I mean that. Sorry, that makes it sound as if I'm critical of John Major and Tony Blair, which I'm not. I mean, I think the John Major government's reputation now stands a lot higher than it did then, and uh, I think you know Tony uh, Tony Blair's reputation has been obviously damaged by Iraq, but his his record of government was a very impressive one. But you know, the fact is, you know, I was I'm a I'm a post-war baby boomer. And the first three decades of my life were spent uh, with governments presiding over a decline uh, in Britain's economy and its political standing. Under the last Wilson government, we had inflation of 22%. Uh, under the Heath government, we had national unions and miners striking, demanding 30% uh, pay increases. So it wasn't it wasn't a kind of a wonderful world. But you could definitely argue that Britain could become the sick man of Europe again. And actually, Britain's climb back up the international rankings coincided <laughs> as no coincidence with its membership in Europe. Yeah, and you know we made we made post-war miscalculations. We didn't believe that the European uh, community, as it then was, would succeed, and then it very rapidly outstripped us in terms of economic performance, and we felt obliged to join. And my worry is that we we might be condemning ourselves to a further further period of, of decline after the relatively prosperous years that we've had in recent decades. Stephen, thank you very much. Stephen Wall talking to Alex Dean there. Which means that that's that for this week. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Stephanie Boland this time. We'll be tracking the fateful twists in the concluding chapter of the Brexit saga on prospectmagazine.co.uk. Please do give us a rating on iTunes, which really does help. And be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.